This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom Dioria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom Dioria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk. It's the first Sunday of March. We're on at 5 p.m. in the New York Listen area and 3 p.m. in Arizona on March 2nd, 2014. And we're live from our New York offices, and we're going to be discussing what is startup culture. And our guest is uh, Fred Dawkins. I'm Tom DeRoy. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated. And together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology, use to make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you the review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with our increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry-wide report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software or equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us from many aspects of business and industry, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com. We'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call, send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else that we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listening area, call us toll-free at one 866 536-1100. You can send us email questions to techtalk at imi-us.com, and if we don't get them answered on today's show, we'll definitely send you an answer during the week. And we're also being simulcast on the web, so if you can't get to your radio and you want to listen to us live, go to KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, go to our website, which is imi-us.com. Click in the upper right-hand corner on the Tech Talk button, and then uh, all the shows are there. They're archived. You can download them, send them to your friends, listen to them as many times as you want. It's free, so please take advantage of that, and please call in any time during the show, and we'll try and get you on. For a segment so we can review its increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's compiled by Dave Brandon, Dan Dioria, and Jose Batista. And um, we were at a, uh, a PAL luncheon uh, with the new police commissioner, Branton, uh, this week. And uh, we recorded his remarks. And we're going to uh, have that on next week's show as part of the Week in Review uh, so I think that'll be interesting about uh, where he sees the police department going under his tenure for the next at least four years. We have a lot of stuff to cover with you. Uh, Cranes tells us that New York-based mobile parking payment company Pango Mobile Parking announced last week that it closed an investment round that will provide the company, which helps drivers find street parking, with up to $6.5 million in new funding, Pango is part of a growing number of software developers hoping to carve out space in New York's $2 billion, that's what it be, dollar parking market. Bearing capital and existing shareholders led the round. Funds from the round will be used to fund the company's growth nationally and internationally and investments in next-generation smart parking technology. Pango's technology was invented in 1996 and launched initially across Israel in 2007. The company made New York its headquarters in 2012. It has more than 800,000 users, recording over 2 million monthly parking transactions. The company's technology is licensed and is 
in use in the Israeli market, the Czech Republic, Germany, Greece, and Poland. The investment will be used to further development of a mobile parking application, introducing new features using cutting-edge technology. Mobile parking applications have become increasingly common in major cities throughout the United States as drivers look to find more convenient areas and ways to find parking places on and off the street, in garages and lots. Nearly 30% of all traffic in the United States in 2013 was attributed to drivers looking for parking spaces. It's a pretty interesting statistic. Okay. As you know, if you're a regular listener, we're involved in uh, technology for the public safety agencies in the city of New York, and the police department appointed Jessica Tisch as the CIO and Deputy Commissioner for Technology. Ms. Tish will be responsible for NYPD's information technologies, including data centers, disaster recovery, data security, and more. She'll oversee the NYPD's computer-aided dispatch system, domain awareness system, and enterprise case management systems, among others. Uh, Commissioner Bill Bratton says she has a progressive view on the role of data systems and technology should play at the NYPD. She has focused on how technology can uh, enable officers to do their jobs most safely, efficiently, and effectively. And um, in talking to some of her staff, uh, she was uh, uh, responsible or played a major role in the creation of uh, the counterterrorism unit within the police department. Okay, what else do we have to tell you? We have something from uh, one of our regular uh, contributors to the show, Gabe Goldberg. Both the marketplace and uh, legislators believe it's better to have software available under the present terms and sharply limit, if not eliminate, software availability by forcing developers to bear a risk they can't manage, he says. Of course, if you want to give the plaintiff's lawyers a brief windfall, more negligence and products liability for software would make sense. And uh, I guess the, uh, the problem here is in the case of software in general, the cost of producing perfect code probably approaches infinity, especially given the typically unpredictability of changing platforms and circumstances. So uh, this is uh, something that he got from Dartmouth College, and uh, you may want to check their website to see what that's all about. Okay, and as you know, we give you bottom line personnel's, uh, personnel's um Input once a month, and uh, today we want to tell you about uh, some of the other uh, cool stuff uh, that uh, they had, a smarter key, quick-set Kivo, installless Bluetooth-enabled deadbolt lock, and you don't have to dig your keys out of your pocket to get home into your home. Special key fob alerts the lock that you're near, allowing keyless entry when you touch the lock with your finger. If you you can use a regular key also. If you have an iPhone 4S, 5, 5C, or 5S, you can get into your home. And even if you get your key ring fob, your phone can tell the lock you're near. company hopes to make Kivo compatible with additional smartphones in the future. So that's interesting. A simple and inexpensive home monitor. Canary lets you keep tabs on your home from anywhere in the world. It, figures, it features a wireless high-definition video camera and other sensors that track motion, sound, temperature changes, and other activity in the home. It can send a warning uh, to an Apple or Android smartphone if, uh, say, Canary suspects that someone is in the home when it should be vacant or that a furnace has stopped working on a cold day. So that's uh, something uh, interesting as well. 
It's $199, and uh, we're not recommending it, but you may want to just check it out on their website. High-tech reminder system, uh, Mother, lets you know when you've forgotten to do something. Attach one of its small wireless sensors to a pill bottle, for example, and it will keep track of when the bottle is picked up and send you a notification via text message, email, or even a phone call when you miss the dose. Attach one to a watering can, and we'll keep track of whether you watered your plants. How annoying. Uh, we'll give you some others uh, next week about that. Here's uh, an interesting thing. Um, to remove a deceased loved one's Facebook page, log on to your own Facebook page and click the icon of a cog in the upper right. Then click Help at the bottom of the drop-down menu and search bar that appears, type Report Deceased Person. From there, you will have the option to have the loved one's page either memorialized or removed. The memorialized account will stay on Facebook so that friends and family members can still view it but cannot it cannot be altered. So that's uh, pretty interesting. Overuse career buzzwords, delete from your LinkedIn profile and stop using in your job search. Responsible, strategic, creative, effective, patient, expert, organizational, driven, innovative, and analytical. Geez, I won't have anything on my uh, LinkedIn page. These words have been used so often in so many contexts that they have lost meaning and now point to people who have nothing new or interesting to say about themselves. Instead, using words such as link your skills to specific results that show your Competence. Use active rather than passive language showing how you achieve specific results. Get endorsements and recommendations from reputable people who can verify your abilities. And finally, uh, first-generation iPads are still useful despite being a bit sluggish because of little built-in memory and lack of support for its operating system. The original iPad can make a good guest or coffee table computer an easy way for guests to get online information. Also, it can be used for watching movies or TV shows, listening to podcasts, and reading ebooks. Or give it to a child. Many kid-oriented apps run on it, and protective cases are available in child-oriented designs. Original iPad also can be a good loaner for someone who's curious about tablets but would like some hands-on time to decide whether to buy one. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to get to our guest. We're going to talk to you about what is startup culture. I'm Tom Diorio on IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Diorio. It's the 2nd of March, 2014. And as I promised you before the break, we're going to be talking to you about what is startup culture. Our guest is Fred Dawkins, who's a serial entrepreneur with over 40 years' experience and achievements in manufacturing, retail, land development, consulting, and import-export. Fred holds a BCom in commerce and finance and an MA in economics from the University of Toronto. Everyday Entrepreneur is the first book uh, Fred wrote. Uh, in Dawkins Entrepreneurial Edge series and is currently available at all bookstores, including Amazon.com, um, Amazon.ca, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters Indigo. His novel, 2020 Hindsight, explores major contradictory trends in society and compelling contemporary 
fiction narrative and is forthcoming as an ebook on Amazon.com. Fred, thanks for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Tom, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the title of the show, Startup Culture. Why don't we start there, and then we'll talk about entrepreneurs. But what is startup culture? Startup culture really comes more from the tech end, of uh, obviously, of, of uh, entrepreneurship, and that's the, the side of entrepreneurship that gets a lot of the attention. But we're in a world where... Uh, uh, things are changing so quickly. The dominant factors are globalization and technology. And uh, the business model we've been working on for the past 50 years has been focused on turning out executives for large companies. Now we're in a world where change is the dominant factor, and we really need to be more adaptable, resilient, and flexible. And startup culture is, is evolving uh, as, a, as a way for people to to uh, both deal with the rapid change we're facing and also deal with the reality, the reality in their individual careers that job stability is disappearing and uh, starting up and uh, being able to uh, create and manage your own career is becoming critical for the majority of people. So that's why you, I, I guess you feel that it's, it's gaining more and more importance because training people to do more classical, and I'm sure that's the wrong word, uh, jobs really is not where the industry is going. Um, when you wrote Everyday Entrepreneur, what was the main focus? What were you trying to let your readers know? Well, I'm passionate about entrepreneurship, but I really believe we are in a new era of entrepreneurship where, as I just said a moment ago, it's it's becoming critical both on an individual and on a macro uh, level. So what I was setting out to do was to to do two things: to encourage more people to consider it as a career, and secondly, to help them prepare for that career. So in the book, I try to deal with uh, the philosophy of what it means to be an entrepreneur, because entrepreneurship is, in my to my way of thinking, much more about the mindset than it is about the skill set. Entrepreneurs are people who find a way to make things happen. They don't necessarily know the way. So that mindset of being determined is critical. And I also try to deal with a lot of the personal issues that are involved in an entrepreneurial life and a whole range of business issues that generally people start off into a, a business without being prepared for from things like cash flow uh, management, uh, negotiating skills, uh, building your team, and a whole range of issues that people don't prepare for. What do you feel the two or more uh, key factors are to succeed as an entrepreneur? Are those them? Focusing on the there's personal aspect of the whole range aspect. of factors, but there's two that are absolutely critical. First one is absolutely finding the opportunity. People go often go into businesses with some sort of whimsical idea that they think might work, but they don't really analyze it. All ideas are not opportunities for sure, and all opportunities are not viable. So finding the right opportunity. So if you're working in a in a larger business, quite often you'll see opportunities. A lot of opportunities evolve from problems that exist, and if you're able to solve those problems, that could lead you into a into an entrepreneurial career. Uh, so opportunity is the first thing that that is critical, and the second thing is is that mindset of determination. The entrepreneurs, when they approach a problem, they they'll jump right over the question if they can solve it, and they'll they'll go right to how they're going to go about solving it. So opportunity and determination are the things that I think are the most critical. So you just raised an interesting point. Um, I can be an entrepreneur inside a mature organization as well as an entrepreneur out there by myself. 
I really believe that, and so I'm not just trying to, to preach starting your own business. I'm trying to pre- preach entrepreneurial thinking, and that means whether you go into your own business, whether you're, you, you use that philosophy in managing your own career, or within larger corporations, because those corporations, you know, you hear so much about recently over the last few years, too big to fail. In reality, that's probably just plain too big because when things are changing as fast as they are, you have a company like BlackBerry, which you know went through a full life cycle in 20 years from from startup to huge success to decline, and things are happening much more quickly. So big business need, and within big business, we don't call them entrepreneurs; we call them disruptors, people that are challenging the status quo, uh, because big business has to become more adaptable and more resilient to face this changing world that we're dealing with. So that's got to be a whole different culture. I mean, the organization has to be willing to... Yeah, and that, and that is a challenge. Radical ideas. Big business is very much a, a culture of control, uh, which tends to discourage uh, people who are entrepreneurial and, and, and to some degree drive them away. Uh, but I think now, you know, they're, they're maybe addressing that partly through outsourcing and they're doing it partly through acquisition, but I think there's, there's got to be a change in the corporate culture to allow and encourage more disruption uh, to, to, as I said, challenge the status quo. So obviously there's a need for entrepreneurship both inside an organization and outside an organization. Otherwise, as you just gave with the example of BlackBerry, uh, they, they tend to get stale and and uh, possibly not keep up with their competition or keep their competitive edge. Are there other reasons why an existing organization should force to that? And how do they how do they go about that if they're you know, been in existence well, for fifty years and never first even thought about it? First of all, got to the need, and and I'm and, and I'm not sure that that's happening fast enough. Um, but you're, you're certainly getting more discussion about about bringing in disruptors into organizations. Uh, it's got to come from the top. Uh, I mean, as long as we have this culture of control, which is you know feeding down from the top of organizations. Uh, we're not going to get the, the, that encouragement that I think that I personally think is very necessary. But I, I mentioned BlackBerry because they, they were on a you know a terrific run of, of success, and then all of a sudden they were running from behind, and it was because they, they you know the world changed faster than they were able to change, and that's a real danger for any big corporation. So Fred, so how do you get upper management to be entrepreneurs themselves so that they can allow that? It's a slower, a little bit too slow process, but now you've got every university and every college running programs on entrepreneurship, and 15 years ago, there were very few. Uh, so now we're, we're introducing people, bringing them in with that mindset. Uh, so that, that talent is becoming available, and I think, like any other situation, as big business recognizes the need for it, they're going to be bringing, you know, recruiting those people and bringing them into their organizations just to precisely uh, change the culture. Okay, that's interesting. We're going to take a break. This is Tom DiOrio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're speaking with uh, Fred Dawkins about startup culture and entrepreneurship. It's Sunday, the 2nd of March, 2014. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to IMI Tech Talk. It's Sunday, the 2nd of March, 2014. I'm Tom DiOrio on KFNX AM 1100. And we're speaking with Fred Dawkins about startup culture and entrepreneurship. And uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about, uh, or Fred was giving us some insight into how upper management in, these are my words, stodgy old companies are beginning to look at entrepreneurship. Let me ask you a question. If, if I have some entrepreneurial leanings and my management doesn't, what do you recommend for me to try and convince them that they should look a little differently at things? It's almost a company-by-company company situation. It depends very much on the culture. Right now, I think we've we've had the culture for the last, 40 to 50 years that, you know, you you keep quiet and you embrace the corporate culture and you just stay, you play the politics of the large corporation. Uh, and individuals have been reluctant. Uh, if they were very entrepreneurial in their nature, they became generally frustrated within the corporate culture. Uh, I think uh, because of the pressure to find solutions and problems are, co- you know, we're in the era of big data and new problems are coming up much faster that being proactive uh, is going to be recognized as a real, as an important aspect of management. But, I mean, how to actually introduce that into a specific company, it's got to come from the top down. There's got to be that uh, welcoming, uh, opening the door a little bit, and I think that's going to happen. And as I said, people that are being trained and coming out of university today have more of that mindset already, and they're going to choose companies accordingly, and companies are going to choose them based on those attributes. So uh, in your first book, Everyday Entrepreneur, it seems to uh, appeal to a wide or broad audience. Um, how is that? How did you make, how were you able to do that so it you know, didn't have a very, very limited uh, audience? That appeal? was one of my major goals. I mean, when I joke about it, I say the whole idea of everyday entrepreneur was to write something that was brilliant in its simplicity. That, it, and I, so I chose to write it. I'm, I'm a student of business, and I have been all my life, but I'm not a big fan of reading textbooks, and I'm not a big fan of reading how-to books. And writing a book about entrepreneurship as a how-to book, which is basically a formula when you're preaching adaptability and resilience, is kind of a contradiction. So what I chose to do was I wrote it in a narrative style. It's in a story form. Uh, I found that uh, the reason it, it uh, works well is people relate to the characters and, and uh, the experiences that are described in the book because it's in a, in, a, in a narrative form. People get really involved with it and by the time they reach the end of the book they've learned a lot more with while they've been busy reading the story. So that's worked very well for me. That's a nice approach and it works. I mean you Thanks. should all go out there because if you are working you're going to need to know a lot of the things that are in this book. Uh, one of the things, are you born an entrepreneur or do you become an entrepreneur? And if we do get into an organization where management is in favor of entrepreneurs, how do you nurture people to do that? Definitely, it's like any other character trait. Some people, you know, are born naturally more determined, so they have some advantages in terms of being an entrepreneur. But it's absolutely something that can be learned. It's a philosophy that can be taught, and it needs to be taught. And finally, it is being taught on a pretty broad scale. 
Uh, one of the one of the examples that I discuss in my book, because there are a lot of anecdotes written, uh, worked into the story, is uh, my own experience. I went to Korea back in the uh, mid 1980s, and Korea at that point, uh, South Korea had just you know it would be, had 30 been 30 years since they'd been in the midst of the Korean War. They were uh, very much an agrarian society. And then in that 30-year period, they became highly industrialized. And if you went into stayed in a hotel in, in Seoul at the time, the industrial policy of the country was in a book form that you could read in the hotel. They were just totally committed. And uh, they became very entrepreneurial in one generation. So it's a very good example of the fact that you can learn it. Well, I guess that's a, a good trait, and I'm glad that that's uh, an example that is in the book. And I think that... Uh, that, that example, which is sort of a global example, but why why do you think that small businesses or businesses in general should promote entrepreneurial thinking on a global scale? The two dominant factors today are globalization and technology, and both of them, um, we're part of a global economy. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, you could do all the business you could ever want to do within 500 miles of home. Now we're, we're, we're competing with people around the globe, uh, but it's not just uh, – it, it, that also creates an opportunity because there are markets that we can get to that we couldn't get to uh, in the past. Um, in, the, uh, in the book, uh, my, first, my first business and my, my first love was manufacturing. That was the, uh, uh, the first 20 years of my career, and uh, we were able to, do, to develop business around the world. We dealt in 16 different countries. We started with a very small company. We had six employees. We built that up to about 300 employees, and uh, we were able to do that. So there's quite a few anecdotes in the book about my experiences in, in doing business around the world, but there are like my like-minded people in smaller, small and medium-sized businesses around the world. And in, with technology makes it much easier to access and connect with those people. So the possibilities for doing business uh, around the world are greater than they've ever been, and I'm very encouraging of that. Small business often thinks that that's something they can't do, but uh, today it's very feasible. Do you uh, give your readers some methodology by which they can... Uh branch out, because I'm sure there are a lot of small businesses, as you said, uh, you know, 500 miles is even a, a reach for them. So, right. you know, globally, I'm sure a lot will be intimidated. And it's definitely a stage thing. I mean, if you are doing most of your business within 500 miles, then the next step is to branch out, you know, within the country, and there's opportunities to do that as well. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend necessarily jumping from a very localized business to a global business in one foul swoop. But, I mean, if you've got a strategy for your business and you're prepared to reach out, um, you can take it probably farther than most people realize. And I do definitely encourage that and show ways of doing that in the book. Now, is this something that's limited to the United States, or is it happening around the world? More entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, it's happening everywhere. Uh, you know, countries around the world are trying to. There's a there's a global war for talent going on, and uh, you know, the, the, certainly the United States benefits from that. Silicon Valley is a big attraction for people from other countries to come in, so there's a lot of talent that gravitates towards there. But uh, no, if you read it. Uh, 
almost every significant country around the world has policies trying to attract attract talent, particularly in the tech field, but definitely in other fields as well. So, no, it's going on around the world. And as I said, part of a global economy. We're all in this competition. We're all in this fast-paced society. And uh, and uh, we're all, real, I think, generally recognizing that an entrepreneurial approach is very appropriate. We're going to take another break, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, there's a creative destruction lab at the Rotman School of Management. Um, sounds uh, pretty intriguing, so we're gonna we're gonna let our listeners hang on that as we take a break. Uh, this is Tom Diorio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM eleven hundred. We're talking to uh, Fred Dawkins about startup culture and entrepreneurship. Please stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dioria, and uh, we're talking to Fred Dawkins about entrepreneurship and startup culture. It's the 2nd of March, 2014, and as you know, we're on KFNX AM 1100 Talk Radio, and uh, Fred has written a book, The Everyday Entrepreneur. Uh, it's the first in his series, The Dawkins Entrepreneurial Edge Series, and you can get it on Amazon.com, Amazon CA, Barnes & Noble, and chapters Indico. Fred, if our listeners want to follow up with you uh, after this show, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can reach me through my website, uh, uh, which is uh, fcdawkins.com, and, uh, or by sending me an email, fred at fcdawkins.com. Okay, great. Um, for the break, I mentioned the Creative Destruction Lab at the Rotman School of Management. What is it, and how come you're involved? Creative destruction is sort of a contradictory uh, uh, term that uh, catches people off guard, but it goes back to an economist called Schumpeter, who was the first one to really promote the word entrepreneurship uh, aggressively. He was one of, not one of the better-known economists of his time. He was in the same sort of era as Keynes and then overlapped with Milton Friedman, but he, he very much uh, emphasized entrepreneurship. And creative the concept of creative destruction uh, uh, really evolves from tearing down the status quo and building it back up again better, which is, you know, uh, in this era where things are changing so quickly, is, is absolutely the right concept that most businesses have to look at. You have to re, uh, and individuals as well. We have to reinvent ourselves. So we have to be constantly challenging ourselves and, and tearing down and building up again. The, the lab itself is an interesting concept. It's built on trying to encourage, uh, it's, a, it's in Toronto, and it's trying to encourage uh, the best and most brilliant students that are coming out of that university to stay in the area and, and develop uh, ventures. Uh, and it starts off with a, a demo camp every year where people uh, uh, do some pitches uh, with their, with their, uh, with their uh, concepts. Uh, last year it started out with about 110 applicants and uh, then was uh, gone through a pro elimination process down to about 24. There's uh, G7 mentors who mentor the ventures through. They're given, they meet every six weeks with the ventures and they're given specific uh, plateaus that they have to achieve during that six weeks and if they achieve them they go forward. 
uh, and um, if not, they get dropped. And the whole concept is to create equity and, and uh, to take those business from concept to market within a one-year period. And uh, it's only into its second year, but it's been very successful. And uh, for my own involvement, it's given me an opportunity to mentor uh, uh, students and, and recent graduates who are trying to get startups off the ground. So it's been very interesting and exciting for me. In that type of an environment, is the teaching aspect of it, going back to what you said, uh, I think in the first segment, that you teach them how to put to use what they've learned in school, basically, about the personal aspects and the business aspects of being an entrepreneur? A lot of these innovators are very narrow, and yet to become an entrepreneur, you've got to become a generalist, at least in the startup phase, because you've got to wear so many hats. And I think... Uh, when I when I first met with uh, a lot of these young uh, uh, people, I expected there would be some resistance to what I was doing because I'm very much preaching on a practical level. And I wondered, there's so much uh, attention paid to tech, they, they can raise money uh, easier than a lot of other startups. Uh, that they wouldn't be that interested and that these ideas wouldn't wouldn't be necessary for them, but they are. They still need to, to embrace the fundamentals. They still need to deal with getting that mindset of determination, of, of uh, dealing with all of the business issues, and they're not prepared for them. Even though they're brilliant, they're very intelligent, and their concepts are great, and, their oper- and the opportunities that flow from their innovation are fantastic, they still need to understand the fundamentals of how they're going to take that from an idea to a business. Most of the entrepreneurs that you deal with, you know, single individuals or is it a combination of single individuals and groups? Well, very few individuals can can do it, especially in the tech field. You've got to have a team, and it seems that uh, you need a team early on. Uh, One of the exciting things about the... uh, about the lab, it's at the Rotman School of Management, uh, but most of the applications are coming more from from the sciences or engineering fields. But one of the exciting things is marry the the opportunity to marry up some of uh, of the MBA students with these uh, science and tech students and bring them into a team, so they've got a more complete picture to to approach their business right from the beginning. Oh, that's a that's a great idea. I mean, uh, you know, there are so many examples. I mean, you go back to Xerox. Xerox Labs was great for developing stuff, but they could hardly ever get anything to market. They just didn't right. know how to do that. <laughs> I wanted to ask ask you about about um, why, and I think you might have already addressed this, but um, why do you why do you feel that uh, this is so critical to the economic future? Well, you know, entrepreneurship isn't the cure for cancer, and it's not the answer to all things, but it might end up being the, the one of the roads to get to the cure for cancer. Um, we're creating problems faster than ever before. Um, uh, change is something that we can count on, and the speed of change is only going to pick up. So I think that, that uh, you know, entrepreneurs are problem solvers by nature, and we can all become move in that direction. And uh, for for all of those reasons, I, I just I, I feel that they're really. Uh, this is why I say we're in a new era of entrepreneurship. Are there areas of both Canada and the United States that are more friendly toward developing entrepreneurships, or is it you know wherever you find it? There's a need, and, and governments are starting to look at it. They're they're trying to develop ecosystems. I mean the. 
the the most preeminent one is Silicon Valley. I mean, that is the phenomenal ecosystem for uh, startup entrepreneurs in in the tech field, and it's a great model to to try to uh, to emulate in other areas. But uh, uh, I I wouldn't say that. You know, governments are need to become facilitators, not regulators. Um, they can they can uh, provide assistance and, and programs that will help entrepreneurs. Uh, there's there needs there's a lot more that needs to be done. Uh, one of the things I talk in the book, uh, like entrepreneurship is an important resource, and there's so many potential entrepreneurs who are problem solvers by nature that don't even get an opportunity because of, you know, whether it's by culture, by race, by gender, by lack of education, and, and governments need to deal with those societal issues that will free people up to take advantage of their, of, of their natural skill set. Uh, so I, I, I'm really passionate about it. Uh, I hope you can tell. <laughs> uh, definitely. So what would you suggest to somebody that has an entrepreneurial spirit that doesn't have a an incubator uh, environment similar to what you have at the Rothman School of Management where you can get an MBA linked up with a technology person? How do they go out and find those missing pieces? You've got to find the right opportunity, and you've got to do a very good assessment of your own abilities. Because uh, just just like at the Robin School, where build, people are building teams earlier on, I think uh, if you're serious about it, uh, you, you've got to you've got to really do a, a frank assessment about your opportunity. All, all uh, um, opportunities may be staring you in the face, to completely outside of, of the tech field that you're not. Uh, even looking at, uh, we, we we tend to think of, of innovation and entrepreneurship as the same thing, but they're not. Um, for every innovator who comes up with a fantastic idea, there's thousands of entrepreneurs out there um, uh, developing applications. Uh, it's like, you know, when they came up with the with the uh, iPad and and the iPhone and and uh, all the people that developed applications and, uh, that to solve various problems out there in the economy. They're all entrepreneurs. Uh, it's not just the innovator that came up with the idea, like Steve Jobs. He's He's the, one of the preeminent entrepreneurs we, we all sort of worship and, uh, and would, uh, would love to be able to accomplish, but very few of us will ever do. But there's tons of people out there creating ideas and creating opportunities and create, ultimately creating jobs who are applying uh, 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 innovation, and that's maybe where you should look. It's, you've got to find the problem that you can solve, and if it's big enough, you can create it into a business. Well, I really appreciate you being with us. And uh, when's your book 2020 coming out? 2020. My book 2020 is coming out in an ebook. It's it's a novel, but I also have a follow up book uh, on an everyday entrepreneur called Family Entrepreneur. Easier said than done, and it's coming out in October of this year. Great. Well, thanks again for taking the time to be with us. It's a really interesting show. Thanks, John. I enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista for the Week in Review. Taylor Redden's our producer. Matt Kimpagny's our executive producer. And without Robert Baumbach in the KFNX production department, not a word would you hear. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 5 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM 1100. And that's, I think, the last time we're going to be saying 5 p.m. in New York because daylight savings time changes, but not out in Arizona. And remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. 
Have a great week. And if you're in New York, enjoy the snow. Thanks again for listening.